basil evolved in northern Italy. It's where it's designed to grow best, and it grows during the summer. Mm. But even in northern Italy, in the summer, they have bad days. Whereas inside our farm, we make it a perfect Tuscan day every single day, 365 days a year, no matter where you are on the planet. You make it sound like your team are like sitting having a nice white wine in there, just like the perfect (laughs) Tuscan summer, just having a glass of white. Welcome back to How I Built This, the only podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Scottish tech companies and how they came to be. As always, we're brought to you by Cathcart Associates, Scottish technology recruitment experts. On today's episode is Gordy Wills, Head of Software Engineering at Intelligent Growth Solutions, an Edinburgh-based vertical farming company who are looking to change the world with their technology. Welcome to the show, Gordy. Uh, Hey, Liam. Nice to see you. A big claim, changing the world, but I think it's true. Uh, We hope it's true. Uh, It is a big claim to say that we want to change the world, um, and we really do. We're not uh, full of hubris, though. We understand that we won't be able to change the whole world. We're only going to be able to move the needle in a little bit of the area, and we don't think we're the whole solution either. We're we're one small cog in in a larger solution that's required. Global agriculture, as you know, creates more pollution than any other industry by a country mile. Yeah. And with population increasing demand on food is increasing as well so population according to the united nations is increasing to some 12 and a half billion by 2030 um and a lot of people think those numbers are, are soft um and that actually it'll be a lot more than that as that population grows they have to live somewhere and generally speaking people want to live in the same sorts of places where we can grow things so we start losing arable arable farming land as our population grows and we need more arable farming land to 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 feed people equally that population increase means there's an increase in the middle class where the middle class have a lot more demand for different types of food and they're a lot more wasteful of the food they have um, so you can see it's a double whammy. Yeah. <laughs> and then we try to produce more food and creating more pollution. You can see that it's it's a self-reinforcing loop that means that we're, we're, we're um, causing all kinds of problems. Yeah, so our right. idea is that we relocalize food. We we move it back into into the location where it's you know grow it where it's going to be eaten and try and take it off the land. And that's what our indoor farming solution is about. Like I say, it's not the whole solution. We still need to be able to grow on the land and we still need to be able to do, to to grow other things. But being able to grow indoor on land that has been abandoned because it's no good for um for accommodation or maybe just industrial land that um that, that you know where there are spare warehouses and that sort of thing being able to grow indoors in those those sort of scenarios means that we can relocalize food reduce food miles and the carbon dioxide that gets produced um, and our solution allows us to to tackle many other the sort of population and and pollution problems that come out of it yeah and i suppose one of the ways that one of your team gail explained it to me was if you look at something like a packet of blueberries and so I, I go to Aldi and pick up a packet of blueberries and almost always they're from Chile right Chile or somewhere in South America Chile or Peru yeah yeah and her, and her whole point to me was what if using something like intelligent growth solutions but also like you said other parts of the the chain what if you could grow that in a like controlled environment in Glasgow somewhere and when you go to Aldi you pick up Glasgow grown blueberries. You save on the like the air miles of transporting it. You save on the wasted shelf life in between getting it from X, Y to Z, and it's grown somewhere local, so you kind of know where it's coming from. That that's one use case, right? 
that is very much one use case and, and reducing those food miles is is absolutely key to 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 um why we think that relocalizing food is great i mean the waste problem that you talked about there of um blueberries wasting as they as they move mm. is is definitely a problem and blueberries some of them do travel by air but most of them actually travel by container ship so they're cut before they're ready and they ripen in the containers as they're as they're moving across and container ships are just they're horrible um 240 tons and that's a ridiculous number 240 tons a day of of heavy fuel oil is what it takes to move a container ship around the world wow and when you split that out between all the containers and all the different products that are in the containers it's actually a tiny amount per product it's still 240 tons a day on that container ship so if we just didn't have as many container ships that would that would be um that would be very helpful but the waste you get along the way is is also part of that problem um and also then the waste you get in our own um, distribution system, because it doesn't just get off the container ship and straight onto the shelf. It gets off the container ship, gets moved to to a um, to a central distribution hub, then gets moved out to a local distribution hub, then get, and that doesn't happen instantly. And so there's truck moves happening all that way. Yeah, if we could have a have a farm on the back of a supermarket that's growing strawberry starter plants. Uh, um, blueberry starter plants or even strawberry starter plants for that matter um, and then taking those starter plants and putting them into um into polytunnels or greenhouses because unfortunately the growth cycle of of those um products means you can't grow them entirely in the in the vertical farm then you know you can have them as they're ripe come off the tree and onto the shelf um and then they're there and it's brilliant yeah. and i'm sure they'll be nicer as well i mean i've never tasted a blueberry straight off the plant but i'm gonna get <laughs> Yeah, so hopefully they would be. So uh, one of the things that we have seen um, with some of our herb products is that the because of the we're growing ideal conditions every single day, the quality of those herb products is 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 off the charts. Um, and we have Michelin star chef saying this is the best mint that we've ever had. This is the best basil we've ever had. Um, That's what that makes sense too, because you're always even in a nice good weather kind of growing different crops you've got good warm weather all the time you, you're still at the mercy of a thunderstorm or a random snowstorm like i'm looking at the window right now um, and yeah. whereas in your farms it's controlled to like perfect absolutely um so our, our go-to example for this is basil um basil evolved in northern italy it's where it's designed to grow best and it grows during the summer mm-hmm. but even in northern italy in the summer they have bad days Whereas inside our farm, we make it a perfect Tuscan day every single day, 365 days a year, no matter where you are on the planet. You make and it so sound you like your best. team are like sitting having a nice white wine in there, just like the perfect Tuscan summer, <laughs> just having a glass of white. I'm, I'm certain there are members of the members of the team, particularly at our um, experimental crop research centre, um, who wish they were sat around having a white wine. Uh, but no, there's a, there's a lot of hard work in in developing the product, and that makes sense. Oh, we've already talked about waste, but like that makes sense for basil, mint, like those herbs, which. Yeah, I mean, I know I'm guilty for it. Like, you buy the little packs in supermarkets, you use it for that one dish that you're using it for, and then you forget about it, and it ends up inevitably off because it only has a couple of days shelf life anyway. Um, yeah. So things like that, if you could buy small quantities of homegrown, then, and you know it's going to be really good and really fresh at the time, it just seems to make quite a lot of sense. Is one of the challenges you've got because the problem you're trying to solve is such a massive scale yeah. that you, yeah, so you, I mean, I, you might, I'm sure you're not doing this, but IGS could have a little shop on Princess Street which sells their completely fresh 
um, homegrown herbs and, and fruit, you would get some people buying it, but that's you, you wouldn't even be putting a dent in the kind of overall issue. So, like, is do you have to bring together lots of parties to get them to understand what you guys can do? Yes and no. So our business model is slightly different. Um, we don't sell anything we grow. We have one farm, uh, our experimental farm, where we're learning about how to um, how to improve the conditions inside the tower to, for, for any given crop. Um, but our business model is that we sell the machine. So our, our machine is a nine meter high tower with um, 50 shelves on it where we where we can grow various crops. Yeah. Um, but but we don't grow any crops. We sell those towers and we sell multiples of those towers to people who already have the connections and the understanding of how to sell produce. Yeah. So, um, for example, we have a customer who's based in Paris um, and they have some towers which they use to grow and they distribute directly to the supermarkets in Paris. Yeah. And they are doing exactly that. They're harvesting the crop, packeting it up, and it's on the shelf the same day, mm. um, which, is, which is incredible and unheard of. So, again... One of the great things about this from a retailer point of view is the crops that come out of this, if they're on the shelf the same day, their shelf life is about three times as long. Um, yeah. Because again, they haven't had to move all that all that different distance. So, yeah, that sense. so yes, you're right. There is, a, there is a, a thing here we have to be able to inject into multiple places. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to inject into businesses that already do this, into mm. distributors who are already growing. Maybe they're growing uh, in polytunnels at the moment and they want to improve what they have. Um, the customer in Paris, they actually had built an indoor farming solution of their own, but they couldn't get it to be consistent and they couldn't get it to grow in any way that was commercially viable. Yeah. And that's the real key to um, why IGS in particular is a um, is such an interesting business at the moment is because we've proved we can be commercially viable. Um, so although you know the the smart members of your audience are, are sat there going hang on how is it how does it cause less pollution if you're using more electricity because our sun costs us electricity our wind costs us electricity our rain costs us electricity um whereas outside those things are free yeah. um so the 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 offset is the fact that we are producing things locally we're producing things of higher quality and because again every day is is a perfect growing day the robustness of the plant we produce is is higher as well then the shelf lives are longer so we so they can charge a premium price for our product for the products that come out of our machine yeah and then cut out all of the transport even dividing 240 tons of heavy fuel oil a day across all the different products that are on a container ship it's still not free to move stuff from from um, from Peru into the UK, um, yeah. and so you can drive down the costs, the, the the production costs, and ultimately the balance is such that it's it's better for the environment and cheaper to to run it locally um, with with the machine. So you can see the moving the needle on that is it's quite a it's quite an easy uh, environmental argument. Yeah, it's a really fine uh, fiscal argument. Because the margins are so very narrow in food production, particularly in in um, vegetable food production, yeah, so, yeah, fruit vegetables, um, the margins are very narrow. So, so we have to make sure that we're we're commercially viable. That the amount we spend is not, you know, is not uh, greater than the amount that we can sell for. Yeah, and we've we've actually got about 150 different crop varieties that we can. Um, grow successfully in the tower that we can physically grow in the tower yeah. but not all of them are commercially viable not all of them are cheaper to produce than 
th- th- than um, or cheaper and and more environmentally friendly than shipping them in from elsewhere. Yeah. So you know we, we've got several examples of that, and we're trying to work out with with partners now how we can maybe pick up part of the growth cycle. So strawberries is a really interesting uh, example. In Holland, there are strawberry growers who grow strawberries in massive, and I'm talking about kilometers long greenhouses, and they grow them year round. And that's how come we can get strawberries year round. In order to do that, they need to go through some 3 million strawberry starter plants every year. They get those strawberry starter plants from nurseries around the country. Um, They're grown outdoors. A single hailstorm destroys an entire crop of starter plants and so for safety they have to spread all those starter plants around across the whole of holland yeah and then again you get the wastage from when you pick the starter plants out of the ground to bring them to the facility to to things because the because the plants aren't necessarily always the strongest if we can replace the starter plant part of that strawberry mechanism one uk farmers who are currently shipping starter plants in from belgium and holland there's very there's almost no starter plants grown in the UK, so UK farmers one can grow starter plants <laughs> and be be independent, but they get stronger starter plants, less waste in the in that thing, and not so submit so, yeah, so um, dependent on the weather. You know, yeah. a single hailstorm crossing uh, crossing Holland can knock out strawberry production for months. Yeah, it's mental. And uh, I mean, this podcast is basically forty five minutes of me thinking out loud. COVID, yeah, did COVID help? the IGS argument in a way because travel like travel and logistics and supply chain I mean it didn't stop but it became very difficult so like suddenly maybe it was difficult to get blueberries from Peru but if we could grow them at the back of the Tesco along the roads then it wouldn't matter uh, yeah so um I, I am I'm gonna very quickly say we are not making use of covid and it is a terrible <laughs> thing and um you know we would much prefer it never happened <laughs> yes. food, food security is definitely um rolled up the the agenda since the start of the covid pandemic food security yeah. was already a thing i mean if you look at singapore in particular um they had their 30 by 30 um program running well before the the, the global pandemic for years before the global pandemic and their their intention is to grow 30 percent of their food or to be self-sufficient for 30% of their food by the year 2030. Yeah. And that's what Singapore wants to do. And so if you look in Singapore right now, they're doing lots and lots of urban farming, lots mm. of different ideas. They're trying loads of different things out because they want to be self-sufficient for, for food, for 30% of their food by, by 2030. Um, and what so percentage all... do you think the UK is, as an argument, if they want to be 30%? Like, do you think, is the UK like a tiny percent self-sufficient, do you think? Uh, it depends again on crop. So, so we grow a lot of, or we grow a lot of staple crops in the UK that mm. we export. Yeah, but we also import a load. So it depends which crop you, which crop you're looking for. So, um, I don't know the numbers. Yeah. Um, I absolutely don't, but I can't imagine that we're we're self sufficient against our against our requirements very much at all. Yeah. Um, although you know this is where food security becomes becomes you know bubbles up the agenda because of the pandemic is that people can suddenly see this we're starting to see problems in the global supply chain mm-hmm. we're starting to see you know see, see issues and we are we haven't touch wood seen massive shortages of anything really i mean right at the beginning we saw people panic buying and our logistics our just in time logistics chain not being able to keep up yeah our, our growth solution for that wouldn't have been able to solve that problem because we can't 
we can't magic food out of nothing to support to cover a a short term global supply chain problem. Yeah. But if you can shorten those supply chain routes, then you're less less reliant on on the on the long the long routes. So yeah, so the food security question has made it much easier to convince people that we need to that, that they need to be thinking about diversifying where their food comes from and like trying to localize it as well you know so there's a good environmental argument and there's a great food security argument yeah and there's a, there's a whole like the kind of shop local movement that happened during covid which was mainly around like gifts or trying to buy like scottish gin or um like craft beers and stuff like that there was that whole thing there's no real reason that you shouldn't argue that on like the stuff you buy a lot more of than like gifts and beers like the actual food that you put in your fridge um so yeah that it makes sense if you could i'm mean, singapore is a good example if you could even if like 30 percent of our fridges were from stuff grown in scotland whether that was in a vertical farm or otherwise would probably be a good step you would think uh, yeah, you would absolutely hope. Um, uh, not only is it is it good for the environment, it's also good for our own internal economy as well. Um, yeah. yeah, in in terms of in terms of circulating the money through through our uh, through our own economy, um, it's great to export stuff because you can make lots of money on it, and it's great for government because they can make lots of tax on it that helps to look after um, the rest of our society and and helps to keep us keep us going, and that's that's a good thing. Um, but circulating that money internally in the internal economy economy um, is is usually a better sign and a healthier sign so what we would want to do ideally is we'd want to be able to um, grow locally wherever we are um, and, but grow to the right level so that we don't have lots of lots of waste yeah. in the um, uh, 80s saw Europe with these massive kind of excess food things because everyone was growing and there were subsidies for growing this and subsidies for growing that and so people were growing and so we ended up with butter mountains and wine lakes and and, and all the rest of it a wine um, lake sounds tremendous i know doesn't it um but it, but actually that's as much of a problem because because in doing in growing that excess we're using up resources that we then can't use again later on and you said about the margins being so fine if you start overproducing yeah. then i imagine the margins become almost negative well, this is this is where the this is where the subsidy problem. That's the the reason we get we have those problems in the in the eighties because uh, a lot of farming in Europe was being subsidised and they were growing cash crops for subsidy rather than food crops for the for the world. Yeah, that makes sense. There's going to be loads more farming chat, but <laughs> given that we're on a vaguely technology focused podcast, I mean it's Scotland and technology, so we've done some of the Scotland stuff. Um, you're the, the head of software engineering at IGS. Yep. So given that we've just chatted for 20 minutes about vertical farming and the issues that IGS are helping to try and solve, where on earth does software come into it? Uh, well, that's a really interesting question. And software comes into it because it's a complex machine that needs to be or, or that needs to be operated. Um, and that's that's the really simple answer. Um, if you think about it in a, in a little bit more detail, because we're having to control the entire environment, um, so we are the sun, we are the wind, and we are the rain, um, and we have to control that entire environment. And we slightly overpressure our our um, grow space within which this nine meter tower exists to um, keep pests and disease pushed outwards. So any leaks in this in the system ex- exhale air rather than rather than pull pull stuff in. But anyway, yeah. we keep it slightly overpressured. We control that entire environment, and controlling that is a difficult thing to do. So. We look at we look at it in in several layers of abstraction. 
Um, there's the machine itself, the physical machine itself that's doing the doing the stuff, and that's controlled within the machine by a a particular type of specialist computer called a PLC, a programmable logic controller, um, and that allows us to read sensors in the machine, make decisions, and 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 fire actuators to 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 change things. So, you know, really simple example is it reads the temperature sensors, and if the temperature starts deviating from from um, it designed, it can actuate the the HVAC in order to to cool the air and or to warm the air and bring it back to to where it needs to be. Yeah. So all of that control is happening internally. Um, but the thing about that is that the fifty shelves that I described earlier in in the nine meter tower, each of those could have a different um, crop on it at a different stage in its growth. Mm-hmm. Um, because we don't just stick in a homogeneous crop into the tower on a single day and then grow it for for and then take it out because what you end up then with is a big pulse of of product that has a short shelf life and then a fallow period afterwards so the idea is to grow at different rates through the shelves mm-hmm. so in order to be able to manage that and coordinate it um that's where the main software work comes in the software keeps a keeps a track of what job is running in which tray and it schedules out all the jobs against the plan. So any 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 crop has a planned growth. We call that a recipe. So we'll say lights on for 18 hours. We can actually be as specific as to say lights on at these given frequencies for 18 hours, lights yeah. off for six hours, lights on at a slightly different range of frequencies because it's a later stage in its growth. So plants need different... Uh, <laughs> different photosynthetic flux density there's a lovely little uh, phrase for you ppfd um they need different uh, ppfd depending on what stage in their growth they are and we can actually control um to that to that level so the plan we convert into an instance of that of that plan for any given tray and we have multiple different plans depending on what you're growing not just what you're growing but how you want it to 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 respond so basil for example if we're just growing that to be minced up and put in stuff then we want it to grow short with fat leaves so it's really tasty if we want to grow it to put into pots to sell in a supermarket we want to grow it tall and so we can change the lighting conditions to grow it all to etc so all of that coordination happens in the software and then it has to run at the same time we've got several um key resources that are used for multiple things physical resources so the easiest example is the lift in the middle that takes a tray from the loading slot and goes and puts it on one of the shelves takes it off the shelf and brings it back to the loading slot to be harvested it also has the irrigation system on it so it has to move to to a slot in order to water a, a particular tray and it also has our computer vision um uh, cameras on it, which allow us to move to a particular place and take a photo of the of the crop and and assess how it's um, assess how it's growing. So that lift is quite busy. It's quite a busy thing. So when I come to run a command against the plan, you know, at three fifteen on a Tuesday, I should be running a watering to this particular tray. Well, if that lift is already in use doing something else, then then we've got a conflict, and we have to reschedule that command. And so the so a lot of the the logic in the software is about making sure that schedule is as close to the plan as possible, so as not to affect quality. Because yeah. we're talking about creating perfect Tuscan days. What I don't want to do is create the not perfect Tuscan day <laughs> by accidentally bumping into uh, you know commands bumping into each other so we spend a lot of time in mean, a lot of decision making models in around how we can how we can best run those and then yeah. the whole thing there needs to be an interface for the user to be able to say 
here's a tray, go grow it, and also get me that tray, I want to harvest it. So that that, the, that whole user interface is also provided by the software, it sits on top of that scheduling engine and allows us to, to manipulate the machine that way. Do each user have like slightly different requirements? Like, Do you end up having to do slight tweaks for the client in Paris, for example, in comparison to another client? Um, so yes and no. Um, we actually build all the features into the software. So it's nice. one instance of the software, we have that. Um, and we have different flavors of recipe. So our main, um, our main area is a flavor of recipe called ebb and flood, where we flood a tray and it ebbs away. And then we flood a tray and then it ebbs away. Um, yeah. And there's a, a drainage system. And we, uh, using that system, we, we water a tray probably once every 12 hours um, during the early cycle and once every 24 hours during, its, during the later part of the cycle. Yeah. There's another system called shallow water culture where we flood a tray, but it doesn't really drain. It does, but very, very slowly. And so it stays. And so the plants are sat in water. Yeah. Um, and there's a different there's differences around the substrate we grow things in in between between those two different um, things. So we do have these those sorts of differences, but we build it all into one software solution, one hardware solution. That's the that's the idea. Yeah. Over time, as we add more features, I mean, one of the areas that we don't do at the moment, but we may end up doing in the future, um, is aeroponics. We may have to have a different version of the of the software and the hardware to to cope with aeroponics, or we may not. It depends how we how that ends up being how that ends up being delivered. Yeah, you've made it sound relatively simple. I know it's not because it's like such a <laughs> it's such a like it's, there's so many moving parts. Literally, yeah. Um, one of the things I remember from again chatting to Gil was, and it's probably worth pointing out actually, the the farms and the kind of when the end users are using them, they've got kind of rows and rows of these farms, right? And co- the whole point is like as little human contact as possible. Yeah, yeah. The the, the fewer humans involved, um, the faster things happen. So one of the issues we have with humans is they come in and they want to look at things. And when they come in and they want to look at things, for safety reasons, for sensible safety reasons, because we've got lots of very heavy metal moving quite quickly, everything stops. Yeah. So that the, so that humans don't get don't get um, damaged, um, pesky humans. Um, so you know, so that the humans don't get damaged, everything stops, and that means that you know suddenly, I have, not only have I got a conflict because I've got two things that are supposed to happen at the same time, I now have a conflict because nothing can happen. Yeah. So, so so the rescheduling becomes comes even more complex, and there and there's, there's a lot of lifting. If we could take the humans out of that equation. And we can have some sort of automated system that only cuts the cuts the light curtain for us. And sorry, we have a laser curtain across the front of the thing, so yeah. so so literally you cannot get in without cutting cutting without stopping the machine. Yeah. Um, so if something breaks that laser curtain, then everything stops. But if it's a machine that breaks it or a an automated system somehow, then we know we one we're expecting the break, and two it can get reset almost instantly. Yeah. So there's very little interruption. When it's a human. At, at the very least, it's two or three minutes interruption. Often, it's forty-five to an hour of, yeah. of interruption as they go poking around the, the machine <laughs> or, or whatever. Um, so yeah, so when we have a hundred towers, so a tower is our kind of unit; it's our module. When we have a hundred of them, um, it's going to be really difficult to to keep to have enough humans and to keep in your in your head 50 trays per tower 100 towers that's 5000 trays all growing different things all at different stages of of their growth we really need to automate that we really need to get that get that um, 
that that system automated. And that is the intent. We're not quite there yet, but but that is the intent. That's pretty cool. And also, I remember. Correct me if I'm wrong here as well, because it was a long time ago. Um, did you have you also not kind of had to almost like make your own product in a way when it comes to the the lighting and and the different elements of the the farm itself? Because obviously you built the tray and the the arm that does all the irrigation and all the um, yeah. other things we've already talked about. But then when it comes to the lighting and all that kind of stuff, is because IGS have ended up developing their own. Kind of a whole other area of the business, almost kind of as a result of the farm. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So we so the lighting aspect is is really interesting. So <laughs> the reason that we've had to build our own is because no one was doing it. No one was 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 doing it to the level of detail. Normally in indoor farming, um, we have great big um, white lights that represent the sun yeah. and are literally replicating the sun. Um, the problem with that is they're very expensive to run. So you need a high margin crop in order to be able to do it, which is why indoor farming is usually um, associated with flowers and fruits and that sort of stuff, things you can sell for a, for a high margin. Yeah. Um, because they're expensive to run and they use a lot of electricity. So one of the intents was that um, we could use LEDs um, mm-hmm. instead of um, large incandescent lights. Um, and we could use LEDs uh, refined down to particular wavelengths, like I said, for that photo, photosynthetic photon flux density wow <laughs> um, love so, that we got that in twice yeah uh, i'll say it again don't worry um, so so um trying to tie try that down and try to use leds the issue with leds on normal electricity is either you have to um convert ac to dc which is incredibly inefficient and you need to run them from dc or you run them um, through a step down on on AC. AC electricity, as I'm certain you know, uh, runs in a sinusoidal um, wave between a positive and, and negative voltage, uh, relative voltage against the against the centre. LEDs only emit light when the electricity is travelling in one particular direction. So that means they only emit light for half of their sinusoidal wave. Anything that's below the line no no light emitted no light emitted equally leds because of the way they work they don't start emitting light until you're about halfway up the curve and then they transmit light pretty much um solidly all the way through the top of the curve and then stop about halfway down so you get this flashing effect yeah and on ordinary ac in the uk that's 50 times a second in the us it's 60 times a second these light the leds are flashing on and off humans can't detect it can't can't really detect it um some humans get headaches if they if they're in that light for some for extended periods of time but realistically we can't detect it i mean there's every chance you've got an led light in the room you're in and you don't even know however plants don't like it at all and they die pretty quickly Hmm. when that when that's that's happening so we've had to um reinvent how we power the um how we power leds so we have a patent on um, using three-phase electricity, and we rectify it in such a way that the um, the driving phase is always in the top part of its um, of its of its arc. So we've really, really efficiently rectified the um, three-phase electricity, and then we get what is what feels to the LED like DC power <laughs> running through it. So you get constant constant light. So we pretty much had to invent that because nobody was doing it. Uh, certainly no one was doing it in the in the agricultural world um and so we've had to build those we built those lights directly onto the trays so the tray itself is a piece of technology that includes lighting draining um a way to deliver um 
irrigation and, and all of that has to be controlled in a way that's that's wireless because the trays move around all over the place all the time so yeah. when they slot in they get powered up um they turn on their radio and then they listen for instructions about how to how to run their lights so it's a really really interesting um in interesting piece so yeah we've had to invent that we've had to invent the size and shape of the tray we've had to invent the irrigation system we've had to reinvent hvac uh, which is heating, ventilation, air conditioning. So we've had to reinvent how the, how the HVAC works to make it more efficient because standard HVAC like you get in your office building, really expensive and really yeah. difficult to do. So 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 we've had to re rework how we do that. And we, we have lots of lots of feedback cycles through the system and lots of countercurrent systems where we're where we're able to pull heat out of one system and exchange it and doing the same with moisture and, and everything else. So we so we've had to invent a lot of this system ourselves. Yeah, no, I mean, and again, that, that's one of the reasons I really wanted to do the podcast series and talk to companies like IGS is you look at a vertical farming unit growing basil, it's it's quite cool. It doesn't look that exciting from a technology point of view when actually under the hood, it's, it's mental, really. Yeah. And you've just, I think more recently, been looking at kind of, well, you mentioned computer vision already, but machine learning as well. And obviously, this isn't the, the AI podcast series, but... I'm not going to shy away from talking about data. Where does kind of machine learning, I mean, you mentioned the computer vision earlier, it can take images and see how the crops are doing. Is there any other use cases? Uh, there are many other use cases. The three that we're working on at the moment are um, computer vision for crop monitoring. Yeah. Um, so we're really early days in that. And we're, we, we've got a really, really rough idea of 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 um of how that works and our model isn't isn't that accurate just yet mm -hmm. um but we've got some ideas on how to improve that um another area that we're looking at is recipe optimization because the weird thing about um, biology and genetics is that while something has evolved for perfect tuscan days maybe there's a more perfect tuscan day yeah maybe there's a slightly different way we can we can do the lighting maybe instead of a 24-hour day we can run a 22-hour day an 18-hour day, a 12-hour day. Maybe we can um, change the change the lighting um, so that it's not quite, you know, what we would consider to be a perfect Tuscan day. But it, but the um, PPFD, here we go, the, <laughs> the photosynthetic photon flux density um, is is in such a way that it actually stimulates the plants plants better. Hmm. Maybe there's a better watering regime than the one that, than the one we're using with the, with ebb and flood every 12 hours or every 24 hours. So all of that stuff needs investigating. Now we've got plant scientists, and that's a, such a big catch-all term. Um, but we've got <laughs> plant scientists who who have a really good idea where to start. But actually, we can use ML to start doing some search patterns around that, um, and start seeing if it, you know what factors are affecting growth more. Equally, what we want to do is we want to see what factors we can change without affecting growth and quality very much at all, because we might be able to drive down electricity costs. Yeah, everything is about making stuff more viable. So making sure that we can make stuff commercially viable and drive down those those electricity costs is 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 what we're all about. So that recipe optimization. Not only are we trying to optimize for better quality product, maybe we also want to optimize for less cost in in production, less electricity use, because those two things hand in hand allow people to make more money. If this is a commercial success, it'll be a real success, and that's uh, that's that's key. That's really cool as well, because like quite often when i'm speaking to data scientists their, their question isn't like what company what does the company do because i want to work for x company often it is what's the problem that i'm going to solve um yeah. and when you 
go into even just some of the problems you've mentioned there. Like the problems are really interesting. So like you could see why someone might want to sit and solve them um, as opposed to like working at a bank, for example, where they're doing another credit risk model. Like that's, there's a time and a place for that. But if you want to do something where you're, you're trying to find, is there a kind of a better Tuscan day? Like you said, it's it's quite, it's quite unique. It is absolutely. So we, we recently, um, placed a, a data scientist in my team during the interview process whereas we were interviewing people they were you know and we were running some of these use cases past them it was just kind of wide eyes and see and the cogs turning as yeah, you were speaking this is like oh man this is massive and that's you know it's another one the third use case that i was going to describe is is about um preventative maintenance which sounds really dull and i imagine in an ordinary factory where the where the number of dimensions that you're working with are few that it is quite dull because it's it's just linear regressions of this and linear regressions of that. But in our factory, there are so many different variables, um, and one of which is biology. <laughs> the preventive maintenance um, uh, prediction it yeah. becomes really, really, really complex. And so there's lots and lots of stuff to do. We've got to take into account not only the temperature, the humidity, the acidity of the the. We have to take it to the acidity of the humidity. You know, because that affects the metal parts in, a, in, a, in our system. We have to, you know, think about pumps. We have to think about filters. We have to think about uh, moving water. We have to think about what's growing in that water that isn't the plant. That's the, you know, all of these different dimensions to be able to tell us, yeah, you need to replace that pump every 18 days. Yeah, it's not 18 days. That's a way too low a number. But, you know. <laughs> but yeah, I know what you mean. It's those, it's those sorts of things. And being able to, to, to be able to look at all of those different dimensions and be able to alert early, something's happened, that means this filter's going to block. block. Yeah. You know? and, and the number of different dimensions just makes it huge. And again, it's, it's what, the, um, what the data scientists we were talking to were really excited by was the number of different dimensions that, that make this a really complex problem. Yeah, there's some really cool um, examples of like kind of predictive like asset maintenance and, and helping the, whoever they work for, but helping kind of either lengthen stuff like a wind farm in the middle of the ocean, like being yeah. able to predict if that's going to be able to keep going longer than they thought or like, oh my God, we need to take, we need to go fix that now rather than, because before, I mean, there's only certain ways of getting out to check them, but yeah, you can do some, yeah. really, some cool models. So um, yeah, no, that stuff sounds amazing. So you can do cool models, and that's and that's a great example of where it sounds like there ought to be a lot of a lot of factors, but there really aren't um, yeah. a lot of factors in a wind farm um, yeah. out, out at sea. You basically got temperature, moisture gradient, and use. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how, how many times has it spun round? Um, those are your those are your key things. There are some other nuances in there as well, um, yeah. but those are your key things. And so it's a it's a it's a data problem around that. Whereas yeah. in the in in the in the growth tower. You name it. There's 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 another factor anywhere. So, you know, the biology, the mechanics, yeah. the, you know, everything. It's probably an interesting problem to solve. That's that's kind of the the crux of it, which is amazing. Um, we've left ourselves just enough time to do some chat on recruitment, and you've mentioned having someone join the team recently, so that's good. We always talk about kind of growing teams. How you personally go about it uh, and anything you've learned especially I suppose at IGS going from relatively small to rapidly scaling and now kind of recently announced big funding round so more growth in the works I'm sure um one of the things we talked about off air a couple weeks back was kind of how do you maintain the culture of a really 
small innovative startup trying to like muscle their way into agriculture to now a, a really respected organization doing some really cool things how do you keep the culture though have you learned any lessons from that and i suppose just to give you free reign on it have you learned anything from a recruitment point of view when building your kind of software and data teams in igs that you would kind of pass on to someone else in a similar situation um so yes i mean obviously recruiting is a is a huge um area um of my day uh that's pretty much half of what i do is 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 recruiting and reviewing cvs and and everything else um what I found, though, uh, over multiple jobs, and in this job in particular, is as we're as we're growing, it, it, we've relied on force of personality to maintain a culture. Yeah. Um, so when I first joined, I think I was employee number twelve or something, um, and now we're up to over one hundred and fifty. We've got uh, budget plans, um, like you say, after the, the the very successful Series B funding we've got budget plans that take us far beyond um, 150. You know, we're talking numbers in, in around 300. So we're recruiting across the entire piece and keeping culture, keeping the culture going up until now, like I say, has been a force of personality thing. Our CEO is absolutely brilliant at, at having a really clear vision about why people are important. Yeah. So, you know, we've got patents up the yin-yang. We've got a brilliant machine. We've got software that works. We've got all these other things. You ask um, the CEO what our value is, he'll say it's the people who work here. You know, all the rest of it is is gravy. It's the people who work here who, who are the who are the valuable asset. Mm. Um, and I think that's something that is overlooked uh, quite a lot in in businesses generally. And it's something we drive quite hard in terms of our culture um, within the software team and actually within within the engineering team, the wider engineering team, and then across the whole company is we is we putting people at the center of how we behave. Yeah. Um, those people are either the users, the customers who take who are the off takers for our customers. Yeah. They're the they're the employees we have, et cetera, et cetera. And driving that into your recruitment. So um, one of the lines on our recruitment ads is is that you know you are going to be this sort of person, and it usually describes the job and some of the things. And then it tails off with the you're all that and you're a human, and you remember that we're all humans, and you're kind and you're compassionate and you're caring. Yeah. And that I think is the is the key. Um, we have continually recruited for humans who are kind and compassionate and caring. Um, and who you know, and who can um, uh, drive us drive us forward? How do you, as a head of, so say you're looking for a principal software engineer to work really closely with you? How do you interview them and decide that they're kind and compassionate, or is it kind of a gut feel, and then you'll get more right than you get wrong? Little column A. <laughs> Um, little column B. Uh, so we have a um, we have a, a recruitment process that allows us um, to filter people through. Yeah. The the key meeting for me um, is our um, first interview, uh, which is what I call the rock star test, and we spend thirty minutes myself and another another human from my team. We spend thirty minutes, and we have a loose straw man of how we talk to people, and we just allow the conversation to flow yeah and we learn a bit about the about the human we ask some questions around you know what are they looking for in teams we ask some questions around what why they've why they've come to the business why where their passions are and we just try to try to get something try to get a little bit of excitement and joy out of them yeah 
wherever that is we we root around for it we go hunting for it across across their cv across their personal life we, we go and root for the, something that gives them joy and and try to try to get a feel for for what it is that drives them in terms of in terms of that joy and yeah. what we're looking for um is to root out at that point people who get joy by being the best by being in competition with other people and beating them and being being humans that that um get joy by having stuff and being having status and having things there's a place for those people and that's great and they can all work in fintech um but but here what we're looking for is is people who get joy out of a team succeeding in something people who get joy out of working with others people yeah. who get joy out of solving big problems for the sake of humanity and for the sake of you know solving the problem as yeah. opposed to for ego or for selfishness yeah one of my Not favorite ways is you went you had the nail on the head there it's just made me think one of my favorite ways when we're interviewing people everyone does the like likes and dislikes at the bottom of their cv and everyone likes socializing because it's just it's the most generic thing they can say. Uh, one of the things that we, me and one of my colleagues will often do is kind of ask them, like, if they've got something specific in that section, ask them about that quite early. And like you said, it's like, because everyone's just going to give the same old interview answer, right? That they're a team player and that they like money and they like to succeed. Yeah. But it's like, if you if they like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example that isn't just sport related, but let's just go with sport. If they mention something about sport or politics or whatever, and you ask them about that, I remember one interview vividly where they just went on like a 10, 15 minute rant about um, the state of like politics at the time. And I wasn't particularly bothered about what they were talking about, but the change in their dynamic was like mind boggling compared yeah. to their like well rehearsed. I want this job. I would like to work here. It looks like a great place to work. Like it, it is really interesting to see someone flip that switch. Yeah, it is. It is very much. I mean, I've I've seen um, very similar things. Um, the other thing I listen for is the questions they ask. So we always set up that that rockstar interview um, or rockstar filter. Um, we I set like it the, up. Yeah, I like that you're filtering out rockstars rather than <laughs> looking for them. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Um, w one of the things we we set up right at the top is that it's a conversation. It's a two way thing, and it, as they have questions, they should ask them. Um, and we also um, dedicate a little bit of time at the end to to letting them ask questions. And it's actually some of the most interesting reveals are the questions that that they ask, yeah. Um, and and how they phrase things. So um, very recently um, had a had an interview where the questions were all based around whether their voice would be heard. Mm. And and it's, and it's interesting the 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 demographic of that of that human was such that you could imagine where they've worked they just don't get listened to yeah um and, and our our impression is that that human was was incredibly intelligent um and had a lot of things to say but didn't necessarily say them so in the start of the interview there was lots of yes 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 and that was the answer but by mm. the end of the interview it turned into this conversation because clearly we would we'd managed to establish a a, a um uh, and 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 a level of trust that there was that stuff came out and it was and it was talking. So that person had clearly been in a in a position where they were beaten down. Yeah. Because of that, we have to take. I choose to take that into account when when I'm trying to assess them against other people. It's like, but look where they've come from. Look what they're look what they're doing. Is this is this a person that we should be giving a chance to? Because because things. Yeah. So after our rock star test, the next thing we do is a little bit of a technical test because. 
we do actually need people who are capable of doing stuff we're not we're not a we're not a charity and we're certainly not an educational institute um sort of te teaching people from scratch but but we look at what they can do and and that um technical assessment is made by several of our senior software engineers and then we have a long form interview um ideally face to face but the last couple of years clearly that hasn't been as easy yeah. um long form interview um where we get lots of different members of the team to come and talk to them for a bit some of the conversation is is highly technical some of the conversation is process based some of the conversation is human based you know so we get a really wide feel and then it's a consensus opinion between all of the different different people involved in that process that yeah. makes us decide who's who's in and who's out that's really good um and a really thorough way of doing it and, and yeah you made a really good point about listening for cues about what their current situation is because it will be relevant to what well one you could offer but also yeah in comparison to someone else that's maybe had their voice heard consistently um yeah. and it, it's hard to compare them so you have to take that into account unfortunately we're pretty much out of time which is uh there's still loads we could talk about and i'm sure we will again because uh, like you said igs are um they're only growing um yeah. and doing really well and it's so so cool to see a scottish tech com technology company who are very much global in, in their appeal, but still building everything from, from Edinburgh and, and kind of central Scotland. So it will be really cool to see how 2022 goes. And I know the team that went along to COP26 loved seeing the, the kind of the, the product in use um, and to understand it a bit more. They loved it. So that was really cool as well. Yeah, we were very proud of our COP26 um, uh, stand in it. And it, I agree, it looked absolutely brilliant in there. Um, I mean, Obviously, it had been tailored a little bit to look brilliant, um, yeah. but they, they, yeah, the the actual farm is is just as impressive, um, and is and is just a lot bigger than what you saw. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining, and like I said, I'd love to get you back on and, and kind of pick your brains a bit more about what's been happening and how IGS are are developing. Well, I'd love that too.